Okay, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to tackle the transfiguration today, or it's going to tackle us, uh, which either way would be fine. Um, And we're going to go Mark chapter 9, 2 through 29. So we're going to cover quite a bit of ground. I'm going to read the whole passage to us, and then we'll start... We'll start picking it apart together, okay? Going to need your help this morning. Um, Let's start with verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses as they were talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's really good that we're here. didn't know what to say because they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of that cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with, with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to tell anybody what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of, them, of him. And when they had come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd among them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and, and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they weren't able to. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, Well, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house with his disciples, they asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay, we have just breached the turning point in the Gospel of Mark into the second half of the book. And for the first eight chapters, we've been watching Jesus 
we've been listening to Jesus, we've been thinking about Jesus, and we've been kind of collectively interacting with Mark's material, trying to get a feel for the kind of person that Jesus is. That's been really, really important to us. Who is Jesus, but who is he in the context of a person? We talked about this in great detail last week. Christianity is nothing if it's not about a person, if it's not about knowing a person. Christianity is not primarily about believing something. It's it's primarily about knowing someone. That's what it means to be a Christian. So we've been interacting with Mark's material so that we can get to know Jesus' identity through the kind of person that he is, the kind of character that he is. And finally, in chapter 8, Jesus asks the question that's been building. It's on everyone's mind. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What's your conclusion? What's um, What's your impression of me so far? And Peter finally speaks up and says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, Messiah, but I want you to think of me as the what? For those of you who have been with us. The son of, the son of man. Yes, I want you to think of me as the son of man because I've come to, I have come to bring an end to evil and an end of suffering and everything wrong in the world. I've come to do that, but through suffering. I've come to do it through suffering. So we've been um, interacting with this. We've been talking about this. And as we discovered, the term son of man is a very, very loaded phrase. It has layers of meaning. Can anybody remember some of those layers of meaning behind the Son of Man from that study? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Son of Man first means what? Human. Yeah, it means just to be, on the first basic level, it means to be human. We read about that in Numbers chapter 23. What else does it mean? It adds a layer of meaning on that. Anybody remember? Someone say prophetic, prophet. Prophetic. Uh, A prophet. Prophetic from Ezekiel 2. Um, Psalm 8 may be what you're referring to, uh, uh, Renee. Uh, A new Adam, a a messianic figure. Yes, so the Messiah is in the term, sure. But it's wound up in a lot of other things like being human like being a a, a prophetic type of a a phrase. And finally, in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, we see a, and this is what we need to understand before we go into the transfiguration. In Daniel chapter 7, when Jesus is quoting the Son of Man, we see a, Daniel sees a human in heaven coming on the clouds of heaven, being presented to the Ancient of Days, being presented to Yahweh, And he receives worship. So there's also, there's a human element on one side of the spectrum. And then there's a divine element on the other side of the spectrum. We see a human who's a God, who's God. Um, Ask any Jewish person who is the only person that, that can receive worship. And they will tell you Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And yet Daniel sees this human in heaven in the clouds, the, the glory cloud being presented to the Ancient of Days and the nations worship him and it's, that's, that's actually the proper thing to do in this vision, okay? Um, and Jesus says to Peter and the guys, this is how I want you to think of me. This is what I want you to think when you think of Jesus. After eight chapters of what we've been looking at, 
When you think of Jesus, I want you to think of the God-man, human, divine, come to put an end to, uh, to, to evil through suffering. I've come to suffer. I'm the God who's a man who's come to suffer. And then right on the heels of that discussion, in fact, according to our text in verse 2, six days later, right, in verse 2, we have this incredibly famous and intriguing story of the transfiguration. Um, I had to deviate last week because it's such a complex piece of scripture and such a complex story. Um, And because it's so filled with meaning, it's packed with meaning, it's really tempting for a preacher um, to feel justified preaching on any number of different themes that come up in this, in this story. But without asking, how do they together form the purpose of the reason it's recorded in the Jesus story? How does this fit? And it's a, really, it's a, very, it's a very frustrating study because it's obviously incredibly important on the one hand. And yet, it's really hard to hone in on exactly why it's so important. For example, you know it's important because all three of the synoptic gospels uh, record this story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all have this story in there. It's it's incredibly rich with Old Testament imagery of some uh, events and some specific people. We've got a mountain. We've got a cloud. We've got Moses. We've got Elijah. I mean, you just read that at face value and you think... I don't know why this is important, but it's obviously important. There's something very significant here. Um, And I mean, any one of these themes is enough to put a whole Bible study series together on any one of these themes. So, and finally, it's at the very beginning of Jesus' determined march towards Jerusalem. Very significant there. So why is this here? What are we supposed to learn from this story? Why, what, what, are, what, what is Mark and Matthew and Luke hoping that you and I get out of this? Why did they pen this down or put this, put this down? How does it fit into the rest of Mark's material? How does it fit into the flow of what we've already been talking about? How does this fit into our conversation? And why did he place it here in the literary style? Why did he arrange his material in this way for this purpose? What's it all for? So I'm going to try to distill do it's a tall order i'm going to put forward to you this morning that the transfiguration reveals at least four things there might be more maybe you'd find more but i think at least four things pertinent to the flow of mark and he's and what he's trying to tell us about jesus on his way to easter number one the transfiguration reveals a glimpse of who jesus really is in in a visual way Okay? In other words, it shows us who Jesus has already declared himself to be in chapter 8, but in image form, in a visual. Okay? This is a snapshot of what he told us verbally in the last chapter. Secondly, it reveals the mission of Jesus because it hyperlinks back to the primary plot line of the entire Bible. It's like you can, if you can picture the transfiguration highlighted in blue with an underline and you could click it, it would go back to a very significant part of the Bible that tells us the plot line of the whole Bible. Thirdly, it reveals how the mission is going to be accomplished. And finally, it reveals the way of Jesus for those of us that are choosing to follow him. Okay? So one, it reveals Jesus' identity in image form. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words. It reveals the mission of Jesus. It hyperlinks back to some really ancient thoughts and ancient um, 
fun things that we'll get into. And it reveals how the mission um, of Jesus is going to be accomplished and finally the way of Jesus for those of us who are following him. So first, it reveals a picture of, of how Jesus looks um, from heaven's perspective, you could say. Okay, There are at least two clues in the text that show us the purpose of this event is to reveal the identity and the mission of Jesus. The first one is what we already talked about. There's a time stamp. In verse 2, there's a time stamp that says, after six days. Six days after what is what you're supposed to ask. In chapter 8, with the disciples about his identity and his mission as the Son of Man. That tells us that that discussion and this event are intrinsically tied together. They're not supposed to be um, read as separate episodes. They're supposed to go together. The second clue is the setting of the event and the characters that are present. This takes place on a mountain, very significant, with Moses and Elijah. Anybody want to take a stab on why that's significant? A mountain with Moses and Elijah. Take a stab at that one. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yes. For Peter, James, and John, these guys are like, they're like Batman and Superman. Yeah. Well, maybe Spider-Man and Superman. Let's get it right. They represent the law and the prophets. Through Moses came the law. uh, Elijah was, uh, he led the prophetic movement of the nation of Israel in a very difficult time. I would say that's all very true. But we're missing one thing, and that is there's a mountain involved. Yeah. Yes, so Moses represents Mount Sinai, and Elijah represents Mount Sinai. Did you know, here's what's significant, both Moses and Elijah met with God. God revealed himself to them both on the same mountain. Okay, okay. Moses, Mount Sinai, and Elijah in 1 Kings 19, what's called Mount Horeb, which is the same mountain, just different name. You can read about that in Exodus chapter, chapter 3. So here, here's what we have here. Centuries earlier, the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai, remember the scene. This is, this is going to be Exodus 19 through Exodus 34-ish. So that whole swath of, of, of storyline you're going to read about um, Mount Sinai, God comes down on Mount Sinai. Um, and do you remember what, what they see? God comes down from the mountain in a what? In a cloud? Yep. There's a mountain, obviously. And just like Peter, James, and John in our story here, the Israelites are terrified. They're scared. There's earthquakes. There's fire. They're shaking. Moses goes up into the mountain, into the cloud, and we hear the voice of God, just like in our passage here. And at one point, Moses bravery, bravely asks to see the glory of God. He says, in Exodus 33, Moses says, show me your glory. Remember? And remember what God says? Uh, uh, God says, well, I can show you my glory. I'll pass by you and I'll hide you in the cleft of, the, of a rock. But you can't really see me because anybody who looks on me dies from it. <laughs> you're not going to make it through. So Moses is not really able to see the glory of God. But even getting that close makes Moses' face shine bright with the reflected glory of God to the point where Israelites can't look in his face for a few days. He's got to veil it because it's so, it's so bright. 
That's what this is about, revealing. Moses says, show me your perfect, brilliant, bright, infinite greatness and unimaginable beauty. I want to see reality. I want to see who you are. Show me what's real. Show me you. I want you. Okay? Elijah had a similar experience. In 1 Kings 19, when he was on the run from Ahab and Jezebel, probably mostly Jezebel, Ahab's crazy wife, um, both Oh, and by the way, both Moses and Elijah were dealing with Israel, uh, with Israel's sin, their idolatry. Moses, when he asked to show uh, God to show His glory, that was in the context of the golden calf incident. They're dealing with Israel's sin. Elijah just came back from the uh, prophet showdown with the prophets of Baal, this false god. Right after that, he goes on the run. They're both dealing with that. Moses, Moses's God moment was dealing with that kind of discipline. So God takes Elijah up on Mount Horeb, again, another name for Mount Sinai, and there on the same mountain, Elijah hides his face, the same language, hides his face as God passes by, direct quote, just like in Exodus, passes by him. So like in Moses' experience, there's an earthquake, there's fire, and there's a voice. Okay? Now here we are, Centuries later, on top of another mountain, which is ancient Near East terms for where God reveals himself, not just in the Bible, but all ancient Near Eastern literature, God reveals himself or lives on top of a mountain, okay? According to Ezekiel, I think chapter 7, the Garden of Eden is thought to have been a garden on top of a mountain where the four rivers flow off of it and feed the rest of the world, all right? So here we have Moses... In our study, we've got Moses, we have Elijah, we're on a mountain, there's a cloud, there's a voice, but instead of the glory of Yahweh, there's a human, Jesus, emanating his own glory. He's not reflecting someone else's glory, he's emanating his own glory. He's wrapped in the glory cloud of the Ancient of Days, just like the description of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 that he referenced to in the last chapter. I mean, could it be any more clear? It's pretty obvious in that, in that way. This is a visual of who Jesus claimed to be just one chapter earlier as the Son of Man. He's the God-man. In heaven, sitting on heaven's throne, is a human. Think of that. That's who he is. And I've come to make all things right. Secondly, this reveals what the Son of Man has come to do by hyperlinking to the major plot line in the Bible. So we know that this is a vision of Jesus as the Son of Man, the God-Man, the, the prophet who's come, um, the prophet that, that all the other prophets were talking about, the one who is man and who is God, but it's also revealing what his mission is by talking about the major plot line. Look at what Peter says here. Look at verse 5. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say because he was terrified. Now, here uh, is one of the places we love to make fun of Peter. Um, I've heard so many times, um, you know, what he says here to the untrained ear sounds really stupid and sounds really, really dumb. And I've heard Peter cast as kind of this impetuous idiot that puts his face and his foot in his mouth when he doesn't know what else to say and when he's scared. But the reality is, let me just tell you something straight up. Peter gave me the key to this entire passage. Peter is still wrong, 
but he's not very far off. He's tracking with what's going on here. Um, Here's what he says. He says, it's good for us to be here. We should do what our ancestors did the last time they met God on a mountain. What did they do? They made a tent. That's what they did. The Greek word for tent is translated tabernacle, right? See, Peter's Jewish brain is moving here. He's seeing this this vision in front of him and his, his brain's going, I know, I know what I'm watching here. I know what I'm seeing here. Wait a second. I see what's happening. We're on a mountain. There's Moses. There's Elijah. And Jesus' face is shining really brightly. Matthew tells us that his face was shining brightly. Mark tells us that his clothes. And when Moses uh, saw God on Mount Sinai, Peter thinks, God told him that his mission was to build a tent. That's what came out of the Mount Sinai uh, vision with Moses. So he blurts out, I know where this is going. We should build a tabernacle, three of them. Now again, Peter's wrong, but he's not far off. The mountaintop motif in the book of Exodus forms the entire plot line of the second half of the book of Exodus, and simultaneously, it adds substance to the definition um, of the insurmountable problem the Bible says is wrong with mankind. Remember what we've talked about. Jewish literature is recursive, progressive, meditative literature. What it means is it's like a snowball. It'll, it'll tell you, it'll give you an idea. Here's the problem with mankind. And then it will tell you another story. But then it will, in another story, come back to that same theme. But it's gained momentum and it adds strength. You get a lot more out of it. Because it's meant to make you think of what it just said in Genesis, in this case, and think forward, and it keeps putting, the Bible was meant for you to meditate on for the rest of your life. Peter's been doing that. Peter gets it. He's still wrong, but he's tracking. He's right, he's right on with it. Um, let me just, let me show you. Um, if you were to turn to Exodus chapter 19, I'll read it to you. Let me, let me but pay attention. This forms the plot. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses the first thing that the Lord says to Moses go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and and try to look and many of them perish also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them and Moses said to the, to, to the Lord, well, the people can't come up to the mountain, the Mount Sinai, because you yourself have warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him again, however, and he, like the Lord repeats himself, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but don't let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. It's repeated over and over again. So Moses went down and he told the people. Then, if you go forward to Exodus 20, you see basically the same thing. Look at, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking and shaking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us because we're going to die. We're so scared about that. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. 
And then finally, it says it again in Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. You see the theme here? What's the plot so far? Mankind and God cannot occupy the same space. Right? Over and over and over and over and over and over again. This forms the whole plot of the second half of the book of Exodus. The first was rescuing them out of Egypt. Now he's saying, okay, here's the problem. You got to stay away from me. What is being stated here is the problem of of what God says is the problem of of the world, what we talked about last week. The problem with the world is that we don't know God, nor can we. That is precisely what the Bible has been saying the problem is since Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Because in Genesis 1 and 2, where was mankind seen? In Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, before sin, where's where's mankind? In the middle of garden, walking alongside who? God. They're together. There's no breach. There's a perfect, harmonious, wonderful relationship, intimate relationship going on in the garden. Then what happens? Don't, don't mumble it. Speak it out. Temptation followed by sin followed by expulsion. There's a separation you have to leave. That's how the Bible brings that up the first time. Now in Exodus, it comes back around in a recursive, progressive way with more meat on it. Stay away from me. I have saved you from Egypt, but stay away because we can't be in the same space or you'll die. There's a problem. Mankind is now barred from the presence of God, and that, according to the Bible, is the, is the definition of death that feeds all the other definitions of what death could possibly mean. Okay? So the people can't go up to the mountain to be with God, but Moses goes up on their behalf, and what does God tell Moses to do? Moses goes up on their behalf. Look at Exodus 25. He says, And let them make me a tent. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. God says, I'm trying to fix the problem. Do it exactly as I showed concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture so you can make it. And just in case you didn't know God's intentions were clear here, you can jump down to Exodus 29. Look at this. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting, meeting, meeting excuse me, and the altar. Here it is. This is just so beautiful. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I may dwell among them. That's what we're going for, you guys. I want to dwell with you. It's not enough just to save you from the slavery of Egypt. That's, that needed to happen, but it, that was a means to an end. It was so that I can finally bridge this gap and dwell with you. What is the tabernacle then in the Old Testament? What is the point of the, what will, it? Will, uh, it will eventually be the temple, Solomon's temple. It is the place where heaven and earth meet. That is the temple. That's the, the sanctuary. It is the place where God and mankind can be together again. The temple represents a return to Eden. 
every seven days, every seven days, if you keep reading through Leviticus and especially up to Leviticus 16 where we learn about Yom Kippur, every seven days, Israel, representing mankind, makes a return west back into Eden. Uh, the temple, if you, if you want to read the specifics, you know, he said, build it exactly to the, to the pattern you've seen on the, on the mountain. He says that to Moses. If you go through and read the specifics of the tent, the sanctuary, you will find it looks like a garden. Even complete with two cherubim on each side of the altar, Remember what happened when Adam and Eve were cast out of, of the Eden? He said, put two seraphim there or cherubim there, I can't remember which one, with flaming swords guarding, barring the presence of mankind and God. And every seven days through sacrifice, through blood, through consecration, mankind makes its way back. And you know what happened every seven days after that? They would do what we're going to do on the 10th. They would have a feast. They would have a feast. They would party. Why? Because they're in the presence of God. The fellowship was all about being in the presence of God again. And this happened on repeat every week. They would do this. So, Peter, Peter, thank you. Thank you, Peter. He is on to something here. He's so close. And then the cloud overshadows them and a voice from the cloud speaks. But instead of hearing about a tent, the voice says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, this is the new Moses. This is God. What is the tent? It's a place where heaven and earth meets. Peter, Jesus is God and he is man. He is the son of man. Jesus is the new tabernacle. In him is where heaven and earth meet where humanity and God come together in the person of Jesus. In him, mankind and God are reunited again and forevermore. That's his identity and that's his mission. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> I think a lot of us, when we get to heaven, will owe him a big, fat apology. But third, how will Jesus bring, how will he do it? How will he bring mankind and God back together? Well, look at this really interesting conversation about Elijah picking up in verse 9. It says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them that no one, uh, uh, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning that this rising, what this rising from the dead might mean. And so then they ask him, hey, why do the scribes say that, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. It's a really interesting conversation. Uh, back in chapter 8, something similar happened, if you remember, when Jesus told them who he was and then his mission, and then he got to the suffering bit. I'm going to go suffer. Remember, Peter just loses his marbles at that point. He says, he, you know, he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him for saying such thing. No, Jesus, we're going to conquer through strength and power, Jesus. That's how it's going to be. Not through death and suffering. And then Jesus calls Peter Satan, and you know, not the way I'm sure Peter wanted that conversation to go. 
And now Jesus goes, now coming down from the mountain, you see this picture of Jesus in glory and power and majesty, and they're coming down from the mountain again, and Jesus goes back to this whole suffering, morbid death bit. He goes back to this whole narrative. Um, he mentions the resurrection, which obviously, you know, is, means a death. So again, they see this image of Jesus in his glory, and then he starts talking about this dying. It doesn't seem to fit. It's a downer. It's anticlimactic. They just show up. Yahweh is there, the ancient of days, and points to Jesus and said, this is my beloved son. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to die. So Peter brings it up again. But this time he's learned his lesson. He's a little bit more tactful and diplomatic. He asks in the form of a question. He asks about Elijah. He says, why do the teachers say that Elijah must come first? And it's true. In Malachi, in fact, the last part of the Old Testament, there is this beautiful promise that before the day of the Lord, Elijah would come and prepare the way for the day, for the day of the Lord. Um, do you hear what Peter's getting at, though? Peter is saying, Jesus, we just saw Elijah up there on the mountain. So, you, you know, Elijah, who's supposed to come before the day of the Lord, so you can skip this whole suffering thing. Elijah's here. Like, we can just get after it now. Like, this is Peter's subtle way of trying to get Jesus back on track. And what does, what does Jesus say? He says, well, to be sure, Elijah does come first and he restores all things. But why is it written, Peter, that the Son of Man must, must, we talked about all that, must suffer and must be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything that they wish, just as it is written about him. So here's the problem. Here's what Peter's struggling with. This is the problem that's gnawing at Peter's soul. How in the world do power and suffering go together? It's, it's really a question that we all ask today. How is the world's problem solved? How is evil defeated through weakness and through suffering? That's the question just eating at Peter. Well, Jesus demonstrates what's waiting for them down at the bottom of the mountain. Let me read this to you and you can tell me what you see. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down into the fire and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able to. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for, for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, that a crowd come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, and, uh, spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never, ever enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. They've got this mountaintop experience. They're with Jesus. They see him in this heavenly vision of who Jesus is. And his mission is finally to, bring the, to bridge the gap between mankind and God. He's going to bring us together again. A, an ultimate return to Eden, right? And what's waiting for them when they come down? Well, there's evil. There's a demon. If you read a little earlier, there's arguing and division, right? Everyone's arguing with each other. Uh, there's powerlessness. The disciples weren't able to make a difference. Does that sound familiar? Helplessness. They can't fix it. Are you, are you maybe in a situation that you just feel helpless about? Nothing you can do to fix? But wait, there's more. There's also a father. There's a father who doesn't have much except a desperate burning love for his son at the center of who he is. Where was the last part time we saw a father with a burning love for his son? Same story. We just read about it. I hear mumbles up on the mountain. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Do you see it? Are you seeing how this is structured? Scene one. There's a father on the mountain in perfect harmony in love with his son, Jesus. Scene two. Down from the mountain in darkness there's a father watching helplessly as his beloved son is devoured by evil and death and he can't do anything to stop it. So what does the father do on the mountain? What does the ancient of days do? He gives his boy. He gives his son, Jesus, willing to take on suffering and death for the world. Here's the point. Jesus had the power to pull this little boy out of death because he was going to head straight into it, into Jerusalem. That's the point. The only way resurrection can come, he raised this little boy. The only way resurrection can come is if Jesus takes on the suffering first. That's the only way it works. That's the only way it works. Do you see what he's saying here? Back to the conversation about Elijah. Jesus is saying, the new Elijah has come. It was John the Baptist. And he has come and suffered and died. And Jesus is saying, I'm the new Moses. And I'm not just going to lead the people out of political bondage like the old Moses did. I'm going to deliver people out of the bondage of death itself. How, did, how was Moses able to lead the people of 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 uh, Israel out of Egypt through the death of something, right? The death of a innocent lamb, Passover. That was the only way it worked. Why? Because Israel was just as in was just as sinful as Egypt. It was an equal opportunity judgment. The death angels coming for everyone. But those who have the blood of the lamb over, the, over them, they'll be passed over and they'll be saved. 
there was no delivery out of Egypt except for the death of an innocent life. And now Jesus is saying, I'm the new Moses. I'm going to deliver the people out of bondage of death itself. The ultimate gap between God and mankind is death. That's the ultimate enemy in the Bible. And Jesus says, I'm going to defeat it by letting it devour me. I've got to suffer. That's the way, it's, that's the way he does it. He's heading to the cross. He's heading to Jerusalem. That's why this is so important to us. That's where the power of Christianity is. It's in suffering. Now here's what's so interesting. This is the fourth point. This is, this is also the way of Jesus for those who want to follow. And here's where we're a lot like the disciples. Here's how we, where we check out. In the West, we have... We have um, we have divorced the idea of Jesus' death on the cross as an event in time, an event in history, from much to do with the way we live our lives. There is a disconnect. There's a separation. Most Christians will tell you, I'm a Christian because Jesus died on the cross for my sins, period. And the heresy in that statement is in the period. That's true, but there needs to be a comma. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, comma, so that I can continue bringing redemption to my world through the power of my own suffering. That's the full picture. Jesus did not say, um, anybody who wants to come after me, watch me. He said, anybody that wants to be my disciple must follow me take up their cross daily and follow me. This is the power of Christianity to change the world. It's not in our programs. It's not in our events. It's not in our, uh, necessarily our resources in and of themselves. It's in a Christ-like, cross-shaped way of living. It is something that happened in the past to take away death from us. Yes, that is true. But it's more than that. And if you read the, uh, the New Testament, you'll find that in, in, in the first Christian's minds, the idea that these two things were separated, that you could reconcile to a God who would give his life for you, that you could reconcile him to, to a God like that without living like, like that, that was a foreign idea to, to the first Christians. Let me just read you the most famous passage about this. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Are you ready for this? Always carrying in the body the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say remembering something that happened before. He says, in the present tense, ongoingly, we're always carrying in our body, that is, the, uh, that is a, 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 the Greek word for body, is the word, it means a whole person, your whole part of who you are, carrying in the body um, the death of Jesus. It goes on, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest 
in our bodies. What do you have there? You have an ongoing death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. For we who live are always, there's that word again, ongoingly, continually, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, here it is again, so that the life, resurrection of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So that death is in work in us, so that life would be in work in you. This is not just a disconnected event that happened in real time in history. It is that, and it is significant. But when we partake of communion, we are participating. Later, uh, or second Corinthians, so earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, is not the cup and the bread that we take a participation? He uses that word in his body and in his death. We're participating in it. Sorry. That, it's, it's something that, in other words, this this is a cross-shaped way of living. And the idea is, for the early Christian, how can we not? If we've truly been saved and brought to life through a God who gave up everything, who came down off the mountain and descended into the darkness and evil of earth to bring life and redemption and bridge that gap and bring life to us, how can we, how can we not reconcile to a God like that without our lives being changed in that way. And if you, if you just look at history, look at the second, third century and how Christianity turned the Greco world upside down. It wasn't because they were throwing concerts and had smoke machines and all of those things. They were giving. They were giving houses. They were giving food. Even when they themselves, it wasn't, they weren't giving when they had extra. They were giving and they were trading with people. I'm going to suffer so that you can have. You see the pattern? Death, life. I'll take on your death so that you take on my life. Try it sometime. Here's one way you can try it. You can walk by a homeless person who's starving. And one way to do it is you can say, well, I happen to have two sandwiches. One for me and one for you. Or you can go, instead of having your own lunch, you can go buy the same lunch you would have bought for yourself for them, and you can know what it feels like to go hungry so that they can know what it feels like to be full. You see the difference in the two types of giving? One is from, one is, one is it brings life, it's redemptive because there's a trading. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to identify with you. I'm going to feel like you that's what the early church was doing. That's what changed the world. I'm not making that up. It's, it's, it's actually empirical evidence. It's, it blows scholars, historians' minds how Christianity had that fast of an impact on the Greco-Roman society. It's because Christians were doing amazing acts of service and suffering so that life could, be, could come to the community. Women were elevated to equal status. Slaves were invited in. There's people in their gatherings that were of all different economic places and educational places, unheard of in the Roman world. Unheard of in the Roman world. All together under the banner of participating in the, in the death and life of Christ. This is, this is the way to the cross. This is the way to the cross. This is saying that life 
Your life, my life, is a long journey to Jerusalem. Again, what's waiting for them when they come down? Evil, a demon, people arguing, powerlessness. It's all there. What we feel every week. <laughs> and we come here, hopefully, and we, have a, we get a, a vision of Jesus. We're reminded in our heart, oh, that's right. That's why I love you. You saved me. And then we're going to leave. Work starts tomorrow, and we're going to encounter arguing Russia and Ukraine are still going at it. Gas prices are going up. Your family still has problems. And we enter into that world and give and give and give so that life will come to us and the world around. And that's the rhythm. See, Jesus did not say, Watch me do this so that you don't have to. That's where a lot of Christians will say in the West today, watch me die on a cross so that you don't have to. No, Jesus is saying, I'm doing this to empower you so that you can keep bringing redemption by my spirit to the world around you. So that you can do it too. This is the power of Christianity. And this is the power that you have within you, the power that I have. But, so here's where I don't want to leave us. I don't want to leave us with this message of, well, then go out and do more. Because you'd be missing the point. The point is, this comes from a place of yourself being saved. This comes from the context of knowing a person, right? I, guaranteed, the people that, have that, that you are changed or your lives have been shaped, guaranteed by the people that have most impacted you. You, you are the way you are, because of the context of relationships of people. And Christianity is nothing if it's not about knowing a person, a relationship. What brings all of us together is that we've all been saved. And from that, naturally, the more you grow into that, the more you grasp that, you're going to want to do things like this. You're going to keep giving. That's how it's going to work. So... Um, this is not a workspace thing, go out and do more. It's saying, hey, enjoy the Lord more. Know his love for you more. Relax into his goodness more. Fill your heart up with his sacrificial love for you more. And those things will happen. The, uh, Saving Private Ryan. You guys know the film? I'm going to spoil it for you, for those of you that don't. Um, Saving Private Ryan, I, I think I already told her so you can, yeah, I already spoiled it for her. Um, she's in my class at school, and I've been through this with these guys. Poor Audrey. She's got to hear all this three, four times. Um, but you're going to do great on your test. Um, so Saving Private Ryan is a story about, um, I think there was three brothers, three Ryans in World War II. Two of them were killed, which means the remaining Ryan gets to go home to preserve his family line. And a small platoon led by Tom Hanks, is given the charge to go find Private Ryan wherever he's at in, in France fighting the Germans. It's this crazy mission. We want you to go find one guy, put yourself in horrible danger to find one guy to tell him that he gets to go home. And in the process of doing this, a lot of them do die. And it's confusing. Why is this mission any good? We're losing precious people. People are dying all around us to tell this one guy that he gets to go home. Well, finally they find him. And at the end of the movie, they get caught in this really big fight. Private Ryan's with them. And the main character, Tom Hanks, 
gets shot, gets, and he's going to die. It's a fatal wound. The whole movie, they're trying, to decide, they're trying to guess what Tom Hanks, what his life was back home, what he did for a living. And finally, he re- reveals he's a school teacher. He's got a, a wife, some children. At the end of the movie, Tom Hanks is dying. He can barely breathe, and Private Ryan comes up to him, and Tom Hanks is trying to say something to Private Ryan, but he can barely speak, so Ryan gets really close, and Tom Hanks grabs his shirt, and he says, earn this. And then it, it, it takes you forward to where, where Private Ryan is an old man and he's standing in a military cemetery before the graves of all these fallen friends and heroes and he's standing next to his wife and he's weeping as an old man and he says to his wife, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've been a good man. And it's just brilliant. You get the point. See, a lot of people say about Christianity If you just preach this easy grace, well, then people are just going to go off and do whatever they want. Well, not if they really get it. See, if you you just get it doctrinally, yeah, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. But if you you experience being saved by someone, I was going to die. I was on my way to hell against God, and Jesus came down from the mountain and scooped me up and pulled me out of death. How Will your life not be different? You will be inspired internally to be, as Private Ryan said, a good man. Tom Hanks was saying, I'm trading with you. Earn this means I don't get to go home and be with my wife, so you go be with your wife and be the best husband you can because I don't get to. You go be the best dad that you can because I'm giving that up. I don't get to. It changed Private Ryan's life forever. That's Christianity. Jesus came and saved us. He entered into our hell and pulled us out of it. How do we reconcile with a God like that without saying, okay, here I am, send me? And that's what this is all about today. This is a participation. It's a re-upping, you could say, (laughs) of a cross-shaped life.